City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, the acres and acres have just ridden a bike over it and uh, they're still out there and uh, it's City Limits. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month, so we're doing today, we're going to talk some energy issues. We've got Freya Leonard from uh, Friends of the Earth in the studio. She's the, last night when I said to Karina, she's the gas person, she said you can't call her the gas person. What is your title, Freya? No more gas campaign organiser, that's right. <laughs> right. And uh, Freya's in the studio with us already. Uh, but before before we get to her specifically, we're going to talk to Patty Moriarty, one of our regular irregulars or irregular regulars, uh, adjunct professor at Monash who uh, researches, as long-term listeners will know, lots of energy issues and uh, transport issues and related issues. And Karina's here. I'm Kevin Healy. I'm here as well. We're all here. It's lovely. Good morning. That's all right. Karina, anything you wanted to talk about, Karina, before we get on to uh, our main subject? Oh, not not heaps in particular. I'm, no. I'm happy to go with the flow. Well, that was good. Um, <laughs> You're trying pause, to... We need two more cups. Where are the other two? Yeah, we've got to, we've got to pour the tea. Oh. Yes. Oh, dear me. This is... Uh... You want a cup of tea, Fro? Thank you. It's green tea. Sorry, I do realise I had the wrong mic on when you were giving your proper introduction before, so if you'd like to do it again, that'd be great. (laughs) No worries. I'm more than just the gas woman. I am the No More Gas campaign coordinator for Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Right, not the gas person. Not the gas person, no. Although, you know, depends on how many onions I've had for dinner, Kevin. (laughs) And here you are, Karina. We're passing tea around now. This is all very exciting. It's radio at its its peak. And uh, we've got... um, I thought it worth mentioning a couple of things, uh, Karina, this morning before we go on to that. One is that the deputy... um, Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank, a woman called Michelle Bullock, last week said one of the solutions we need for the economy, for the good of the economy, is we need 140,000 people out of work. We need much more unemployment, which the Governor's been saying as well. Now, given we're told that women in these positions bring a bit of, uh, a bit of uh, empathy and, and sincerity and all sorts of feeling to it and uh, to these things, one can only imagine what a man might have said. But anyway... Uh, 140,000 out of work, uh, which I think is uh, for the good of the economy, apparently. It's, it's pretty moral, isn't it, to say we just need lots more unemployed to suffer so the economy can do better. Um, Certainly but, uh, if the alternative is, for instance, curbing record profits of banks and capping CEO pay. Where did that come instance? from? Where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> good heavens. Um, oh, my God. Um, but the, the worry is, in fact, that because uh, the, it seems certain they're going to change the governor in September when they get a chance to. Um, she's one of the leading contenders they're talking about to run the Reserve Bank, so it won't make any difference as far as I can see. Um, she'll still be on the same thing where you have to make the workers pay for the problems of the capitalist system. Mm. And that maths does add up if you if you work for the Reserve Bank, right? Well, yeah, but uh, it uh, well it's it's the it's the system, isn't it? But uh, anyway, and also 
Just recently, speaking of the wonderful system, we've had the Royal Commissions, of course, into the sundry, sundry casinos, both of which didn't come out too well. Uh, and the Star Casino, which operates out of Sydney, was um, was really excoriated by the Royal Commission and, uh, and was shown up to be doing all sorts of things that were totally crook. Now, thank God the New South Wales government got stuck into them because um, the, an article this week, Star Entertainment has handed a reprieve from a major tax increase on gaming revenue at the Sydney Casino with the government flagging it, will, etc. It relates to delaying the increase to start... It was due to start shortly, but they're going to delay the increase of this new tax. So, in fact, for all their sins, they've been given a reprieve on having to pay tax. Oh, lucky them. I know the casinos have been doing it hard for a little while, so... Oh, but you've got to feel with them, haven't you? You've got to feel... It's like a private mint. It's a licence to mint money. I would have thought. Yeah, anyway, that's that. You know, no more comment on that. That's it. I don't actually know that much about gambling, but I do. I do suspect that it would be used for laundering a lot of money. Right? <laughs> that was the, that was one of the big things they were hit for. Yeah, that's yeah, right. that's it. <laughs> it's easy. It's easy. Well, well, and it's interesting to note. You know, governments for a long time have descri- have described gambling as gaming, but they're actually coming out and just calling it gambling now. Yeah. And are announcing that, and I mean, it's going to take a number of years to land, but they're um, going to crack down on online and general advertising of online gambling. So it looks like they are starting to sort of rattle the can a little bit, but it is, of course, you know... long way to go. A long way to go, and we're only taking baby steps to get there. That's right. And in fact, there was an item, I think, on ABC News this morning that the, the... level of of gambling ads has actually increased recently so they they they're getting in before they they get they get sewn out i suppose but they're uh, they're certainly making the most of it while they can which the tobacco industry did too when it saw the writing on the wall and it just had it everywhere so yeah well certainly the gas industry is doing the same thing yeah 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 um and um Look, that'll do. I think we'll go to Paddy because we are moving on. It's nine ten, and we do want to get to uh, to Freya specifically about nine thirty. So, we'll get on to Paddy Moriarty and talk to him about whatever he wants to talk about. He told me I think he's been researching something about renewable energy. We'll see what he anyway. Whatever he wants to talk about, we'll find out. Stay tuned to City Limits on Three CR Community Radio. <laughs> The state government has sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Quali Tops in Reservoir. 
Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Okay, on the line we've got adjunct professor Paddy Moriarty from Monash. Paddy, um, uh, we've also got Freya Leonard in the studio who's the noted gas poop person at uh, Friends of the Earth, so she might well join in this conversation as well. Um, but Paddy, you've been researching lots of things at home, I know, recently. Um, anything you want to talk to us about? Well, I hope, um, there, I hope there is. <laughs> one thing could be electric vehicles. Uh, I noticed that I noticed a fellow engineer, uh, Rowan Atkinson, Mr. Bean, has also come out against electric vehicles. I've uh, recently written, published a paper on that topic. I've also written on um, what's wrong with the present conception of energy efficiency, so we could talk about that as well. And by the way, I've also sent $150 to uh, the 3CR. Oh, thank yeah. you, Paddy. That's wonderful. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, okay, well, look, Mr. Bean, um, yeah, EVs, I know there was an item, there's been a few actually where batteries have been catching on fire, both in EVs and I think some of the storage battery places as well. Is, is that a danger with some of these batteries at the moment? Well, it may be. They could improve it. But I'll give you the main problems. One is that most cars uh, are presently in uh, regions with cool winter climates or cold winter climates, which means that they need cabin heating. Now, with an internal combustion engine vehicle, um, because they're so inefficient, about 25% of the energy is used to turn the wheels, there's lots of spare uh, waste heat. In um, uh, electric vehicles, that's not, not, not the case, so you'll need a propane burner. And that, of course, adds to the, uh, well, both the energy use and the carbon dioxide release. Mm. Um, also... You've got to realise that electric vehicles don't change the land resumption for vehicles. They don't change the uh, the accident rate. Presently in the world, about 1.2 million people are killed each year on roads, and um, you know, depending on how far you go, 10 to 50 million are injured. So, um, and also, they do stop one sort of air pollution. Engine air pollution is less. Uh, than with internal combustion engine vehicles. But there are two other sorts of pollution. One is um, pollution from wear and tear of tyres and brake linings. Mm. And because electric vehicles are somewhat heavier than their equivalent ICE uh, internal combustion engine models, mainly because of the battery pack, they do tend to have a bit more of that. So that's um, a problem for them. Um, Noise, of course, vehicles, uh, there's no engine noise with, with electric vehicles. That's good in one way. Um, but another way, it means the pedestrians don't get quite the same warning as they do with internal combustion engine vehicles. The rest of the noise is the same. You know, the horn, which people toot. Tooting horn can mean one of a hundred things. Why they don't have various buttons so that you could say different things with your horn, I don't know. But So most of that, um, and of course, uh, air friction noise, road tyre noise is yeah. the same. At one stage, Paddy, they were talking about putting some artificial noise thing in because of that problem. Yeah. Has that not happened? I don't know, but, but that has been talked about, yes. Yeah. And in um, 
not in uh, in urban terms, that probably is needed because it's, these vehicles start up with no noise at all compared with uh, cars, which of course mm. is the other way around with the internal combustion engine cars. Yeah. Yeah. Your point about the tyres and there's also that in terms of the pollution there, one of the problems is a lot of that then washes into waterways. Yes, and that's becomes very a, true. and becomes a major problem in waterways. Yeah, for fish and so on. <laughs> you can't just do one thing, as Barry Common has said, fifty or sixty years ago. In an interconnected world, there's always ramifications. In other words, increasingly these days, our solutions tend to rub up against other problems and mm. cause other problems. Yeah, but if EVs are a problem, as you're saying, what what is the solution then to all this? The solution is less travel. Right. Um, as I've pointed out before in an article I wrote a few years ago, um, there's been an extraordinary increase in uh, vehicle kilometres of uh, vehicular passenger kilometres travelled since uh, 1900. It's far in excess of population increase or of um, GDP per capita in- increase. So um, I don't know what it is now. Maybe oh maybe 6,000, nobody really knows, uh, passenger kilometres, vehicular passenger kilometres per person. Uh, last year I wrote an article saying that we ought to have a limit, and in fact this was picked up by, by the website Sustainability, a vehicular passenger limit of 4,000 kilometres a year. It was just, I was just floating in as an idea, some sort of limit. Of course, there'd be no limit on um, non-motorised transport Kevin, so your bicycle riding is safe, okay? <laughs> you see me riding it, you might not agree with that, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, in America, it's something, or I don't know if it's got back to pre-COVID levels, but it was about twenty-eight or 29,000 vehicular kilometres a year per person. And of course, in other places, it's maybe a few hundred in uh, tropical Africa, where people get around by walking and a little bit of cycling. The trouble is, of course, I mentioned traffic fatalities before. Africa has a very low car ownership rate, traffic Africa, but a high vehicle accident rate, and most of those are people who aren't in vehicles. So, in other words, uh, pedestrians and cyclists do most of the dying in in Africa on roads, not the people in vehicles. Which is a bit unfair, really. Yeah, touch, touch it unfair, I must <laughs> say, yeah. And, um, okay, your second point you wanted to talk about today. Uh, well, energy efficiency. There's a huge amount written on this, and there are energy efficiency standards and ratings for buildings and for electrical appliances. What we did in this paper that's just been published, we said uh, there's something like... Total, in total, uh, there's something over 400,000 articles have been published on energy efficiency. There's no shortage of articles, but almost none of them. There's now 4,001, give thanks to you. Yeah, almost none of them discuss the wider ramifications. Take a power station efficiency. Energy efficiency is actually measured by useful energy output, which might be electrical power, over the energy in the coal you put in, right? So, in general, efficiency is an output of human interest over some sort of uh, input. Now, it all started with the peace opens in London and so on. They said, look, uh, you know, this uh, burning coal has got other other problems, right? In other words, there are thousands of deaths from um, air pollution in London, 
and this led to the passing of air pollution laws. Same in America, in uh, in um, Pennsylvania. So suddenly, ethics became important in energy efficiency. In other words, it's not only an engineering matter any longer. And with carbon dioxide, it's widened again. And um, this means that, given that everyone's going to argue about ethics, that um, the energy efficiency of, on this notion is, is has been widened and also it's no longer certain. It depends upon your values, right? Now, um, it needs to be widened in two, two ways. One is conceptual, which, as I say, you've got to look at um, you've got to look at ethics. But the other one is also spatially. In other words, uh, when we use electric vehicles, we um, that's got cobalt, which is mined in Africa in uh, what is called artisanal mining. In other words, just like our gold in uh, the Victorian gold fields in the 1850s. And child labour is used there, and it turns out that the um, the air pollution there and so on is pretty bad. So in other words, what we're doing, we're coming out of this smelling of roses, but what is happening is that there's an increased environmental burden on people who are darker than us and poorer, right? Is that the way we want it? Mm. So in other words, um, and it's the same with our decision to say electric cars solve all our transport problems, don't have to worry about it any longer. That sends a powerful message to the rest of the world, which is has very many countries have very low car ownership, saying, yeah, we can continue in this direction. Uh, private vehicular travel is the way to go. So in other words, our actions actually uh, reinforce our car ownership in uh, areas of the world with much lower car ownership than our own. Car ownership varies from about, um, well, in America, I think, about 800 per thousand per persons. To uh, down to about um, you know ten or five, I think in Bangladesh, uh, cars per thousand persons. So there's a huge variation in um, ownership, and um, which means, of course, that there's a huge scope for increase in vehicle ownership, and with it, vehicular travel, energy use, and carbon emissions. Mm. <clears throat> On that, I was going to ask you. Um, there's been reports recently that the the usual suspect polluters have realised they've got to they're getting into into lithium now because you know it's it's worth money, but they're they're looking at a process of making lithium from brine. How would they do that? No, well, um, well, that's where you like like in Chile. That that's where you get the lithium from. Um, it's um, present in. It's present in some quantities in seawater, and maybe it's higher there. I'm not too sure, but I know that in Chile, it's uh, one of the problems is that they're using the fresh water of the local communities, who are not too impressed, I might add. So there are serious environmental problems with mm. lithium mining and refining. Uh, yeah. yeah, and um, Karina Freya, right? have you got any comments on all this? Yeah. Well, to know you're talking about efficiency and are you talking purely about efficiency of electrons or are you also talking about maximising thermal efficiency and minimising the amount of energy that we need in the first place? Well, you've got to take a system view of this. What I'm looking at is, firstly, firstly, you can look at how much energy, how much greenhouse gas emissions are there per passenger kilometre 
of travel by an electric vehicle compared with an internal combustion engine vehicle. Now, it's made easier. The comparison is made easier because a lot of companies turn out the same model electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine vehicle, and that's what you have to compare those two together on the same road with the same um, uh, climate conditions and uh, traffic conditions and so on. Um, and also, as I say, cars have a, a huge number of other effects apart from their energy use and their um, and their climate change effects. Materials consumption, traffic accidents, air pollution, uh, road take road and uh, car park take up. In the inner areas of cities, this can be as much as sixty percent is taken up by roads. Car parks, footpath, um, you know, driveways, and so on. In other words, there's not much left for humans. No, absolutely fair enough. And is not private transport really just a statement of failure of public transport? For instance, I live in Frankston. I came up to Collingwood this morning mm. in my car. Now, mm. I mean, I avoided getting my license until I was 27 because I just don't believe in private transport. Mm. And yeah. uh, and I've just far. driven up East Link and the Eastern Freeway, I would be much happier jumping on light rail or a train that travels the same route, would deliver me almost to my workplace and, you know, would do so considerably more efficiently than me jumping in a car and wrangling my way through public transport and literally hating everybody that I'm sharing the road with, let's be honest, at peak hour. What about the transport line? You live some ways from that, do you, or I live in Frankston, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I live in Frankston, and at the moment there's train replacement buses. So unless I want to run the gamut of a mm. two and a half to three hour commute versus a forty five minute to one hour commute, you know, I'm I'm yeah. jumping in my car and driving, which yeah, is not my preference. Not, yeah, know? no, but not my preference either. They've got <laughs> their place, but uh, yeah, there's so many buses replacing rail these days; it's a bit tiring and really inefficiently yeah, um, managed. Uh, but on that, of course, also anyone with a disability or mobility disability uh, is totally locked out of public transport along that corridor as long as the buses are running. It's so true. It's yeah. so true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of course, one of the troubles is that the in the outer areas, uh, car ownership is higher than the near areas. Certainly um, in areas around, um, like, uh, the outer suburbs around Cranbourne where they've just built a whole bunch oh, yeah. of housing estates and those streets are not wide enough for buses and you'll see three or four cars parked in the front yards of those yeah. houses. No yeah, well, cycleways. Yeah. What is happening, of course, when you have a, ra- a radial train system, I'm not objecting to that, I'm just saying that's what it is. Mm. It means that the, uh, the route kilometre of rail line in the outer areas is going to be much smaller than it is in, um, you know, Collingwood or, or uh, Malvern or somewhere, which means that um, people tend to live further from uh, public transport. Also, the frequency is not going to be as great because in many cases, if you take, say, the Frankston and Dandenong lines, they converge at Caulfield, so the, there's double train service there compared with on the outer ends of those lines. So what this means is that car ownership is much higher in the outer areas. It also means that they spend, because their incomes are lower, than in the area. In fact, um, if you, uh, a few years ago, I plotted a transect from city of Melbourne out to, you know, uh, Pakenham or somewhere, and the income per capita falls the further you get from the centre. So what this means is in the outer area, they have to spend a lot more on on transport than people in the, in, in the area do. Mm. 
Mm, so it's a basic because of the justice character. and travel justice issue. It's an equity yeah, issue. Look, it's, uh, you know, it's public transport in outer areas is never going to be as good as in the areas. I, I don't think that's really possible, but it could be better. But people would have to use it. It's partly if people... If people, more people took public transport in the outer area, the services frequency, for instance, would increase. But nobody wants to run empty trains. In fact, you've all, we've all seen buses with one person on them. A car is more efficient than that, right? Mm. So public transport achieves its efficiency by having a uh, occupancy rate. Mm. And but also, co- but Paddy, a coordinated public transport system using buses to get to the rail line, for instance, on a, on a frequent basis, not once an hour... Because uh, the Frankston line, when it does run, is quite good as a 10-minute service, but uh, if it's not running, it's not much job. Um, but, the, uh, but certainly, if you, if you used buses to get people to those spots, and they all coordinated so you didn't have to wait 20 minutes when you got there, yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, people would start no, using it, I would have thought. I think that would be better. They're doing that a bit now. You know, like they, um, the great thing about bus services is that, given that Melbourne's got 30,000 kilometres of road, you can trial a bus service out. If it doesn't work, change the route a bit. And that's what they do, you know. Mm. For instance, um, there's one bus service that runs from Northlands to Chadston shopping centres. Why do you want to go from one shopping centre to another? Maybe people don't, but I'm just saying that there are obviously two very important termini uh, for public transport, right? So I think they're moving in that direction, but they could certainly do a lot more, yeah. Yeah, well, our old mate John Stone at Melbourne, he's come up with... collaboration with Foe, actually, he's come up with some solutions that uh, use buses to, to do just that, um, which yeah. government yeah. ought to listen to. Well, I hope that they're low floor and that they have bike racks on them, those yeah, buses. That's right. yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, you've also got the uh, Stony Point line. I was the expert witness to the rail union on that, and the guy who was either buses or rail, right, and there's, there were two lines there. One was the Stony Point line from Frankston. The second one was the one that that um, went through to Mornington. It didn't go over the uh, over the hill there because the grades were too steep for the steam train. So it went through um, apple orchards and a military firing range, neither of which generate a lot of passengers, right? So we didn't try to save that one, although it's got a great um, turntable a steam train turntable at uh, at uh, Mornington. I hope it's still there. Anyhow, um, we had this... Uh, the hearings were at Hastings, and I was the expert witness for the rail union. And the nice old guy... Well, I'm old now, but I was younger then. Uh, Harold was was fronting the bus company. And I said, look, uh, this is the second bar- uh, battle of Hastings, and uh, Harold is going to lose again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking if you had to go through, apple, through an apple orchard and uh, a firing range, look, you could probably grab an apple, have your last meal before you go down in the firing <laughs> range. But, um, anyway, uh, Paddy, look, we're running out of time, but look, thanks for your time this morning, and we'll talk again. Yeah, okay, thanks, Kevin. Okay, Bye thanks, then. Paddy. Okay, adjunct professor Paddy Moriarty there, who's uh, I think people can tell from his voice because he's been on this program over the years, and Paddy at the moment is not too well, but um, good on him to being on. Okay, we'll take a break, come back, and we're going to talk to Freya Leonard about uh, lots of things. 3CR. Okay, back on air, and it's um, City Limits, of course, and we're totally talking to Freya Leonard, who's the no to gas, is that what it's called? 
Uh, no more gas. No more gas. Okay. <laughs> uh, person and friends of you. I hear it on, on the pro show as well. I should remember it. But anyway, look, I know you want to talk about hydrogen, but I, I thought one interesting item in the last week has been this, this attempt by some academics to save coral because we're losing it. Did you see that? Where they're, they're actually putting up a coral museum so in the future people can go and say that's what the Barrier Reef used to look like before it was destroyed by climate change. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing... Uh, and they, they claim that the way, the way Australia... Well, it, it does reflect on where we're going on climate change because um, there was an article in The Age and The Sun, but The Age one said, if the rest of the world followed Australia's current commitments and policies, global warming would exceed three degrees according to Climate Action Tracker. And they, one of the academics says there's no way we can save the Great Barrier Reef. Well, look, and that's just the stated policies and, you know, I'm, I'm doing sarcastic quotes in the air mm. for commitments because at the same time the federal government is continuing to approve coal mines, gas drilling, seismic blasting offshore and the exploration for more oil and gas. Mm. So there's the stated commitments but then there's the actual rubber-hits-the-road policy and there's just such a disparity between the two. So... I mean, it, it's alarming to to acknowledge that even if the you know if the world were to follow Australia's lead on the things we say we're going to do, that's already not enough. But then in in practice, we're not actually doing. We're it. not actually doing the things that we yeah. have committed to, and there is no way. I mean, for us to meet our emissions reduction targets, we need to know what our emissions are. Well, we have no idea at the moment because we have um, at least one um, capped. Or our gas well uh, operated by Santos up in Western Australia off the Western Australian coast that has been leaking since 2011 and there's no way that they can stop that from leaking. Now, that's just one of hundreds of decommissioned gas wells around Australia that are not being monitored for their leakage. So we don't know what our emissions are and, you know, um, I've said this on your show before but I'll say it again because it's worth repeating – are uh, 83 times more polluting to the climate than carbon dioxide over a critical 20-year period, um, every joule of methane that's being emitted into the atmosphere. So uh, we really need to not only do what we say we're going to do, we need to do better mm. and we need to do better yesterday. I mean, it's just alarming. It is, isn't it? But we'll come back to that because the, the industry itself is saying they have to they have to get more gas and oil because uh, we've slowed down in renewables. That's the argument they're now running. But we'll come back to that because you only want to talk about hydrogen. Do you want to go to that? Uh, yeah, let's <laughs> let's take apart hydrogen because it's not just hydrogen in Victoria at the moment. There's this uh, ridiculous project that is um, about to go through uh, approvals consideration. Uh, that is the HESC Hydrogen Energy Supply Chain Project that is being proposed for Gippsland. The idea is that brown coal will be gasified at Loyang Power Station uh, to convert it to hydrogen mm. and will then be shipped. And there's a bit of confusion about whether it's going to be shipped via um, road freight or if there's going to be a new 150-kilometre pipeline linking Loyang and Western Port to ship that hydrogen across to Western Port uh, where it would be liquefied and then um, prepared for export to Japan. It's 
it's really just the most ridiculous proposal. And accompanying it is a plan to actually bury the CO2 out of the middle of Bass Strait somewhere as well. Well, that's right. It's um, it's, it's attempting to uh, sell down its emissions through the unicorn fart prospect of carbon capture and storage, which has never really worked at any scale globally. Um and this is uh, proposing to be the most ambitious CCS project in Australia and possibly the world. It's just it beggars belief that governments would even consider it for a moment, and yet here we are. Mm. And so it's both, you know, um, it's both a problem for the climate, but it's also, at a very in a very local sense, a problem for the people of Hastings, Hastings and Westernport mm. because the when um, Kawasaki Industries did a trial run for um, hydrogen export. There was an onboard ship fire. This was January last year. Um, some of the hydrogen leaked. There was a jet of flame that um, flashed across the deck. And let's not forget that this is hydrogen's Hindenburg gas. Mm. You know, there's yeah, um, Hastings. It blows up. It's it's Hastings is both. Um, a site to a Ramsar-listed wetland, but also a thriving local community mm. who have already had to deal with ESO's petroleum and gas um, industries blossoming there. It's already industrialised and it's such a beautiful part of the world. It's so worth saving. This is really an opportunity for us to recognise that fossils are wrong way, go back territory and to um, start to commit to preserving the environmental and um, and just, you know, community values of a healthy, thriving social and environmental um, environment. <laughs> yeah. But hydrogen itself, is it, is it a, is it, has it got some future in terms of being a solution to the, to the overall problem or has it not? Look, I would argue that hydrogen can be a solution on small scale for niche industry transition. You know, there are some high heat, hard to shift industries like smelters, like crematoria is a great mm. example, uh, where it's 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 hard to find an alternative. And it, with a bang. it might be <laughs> it might be that hydrogen is a solution, but at the moment we don't really know how we're going to produce that hydrogen. So. Obviously, um, producing it using coal or gas is not going to be an option um, if we want a livable climate. So then we're um, turning to green hydrogen, which is renewably produced through an electrolysis process. Mm. And uh, we don't – I mean, I'm, I'm still trying to find out how much land it takes to produce each joule, how much it costs to produce each joule. Where is that water going to come from? Is that water going to come from desalination? Because that in itself – is very energy intensive. So these yeah. are all questions that need to be answered before we can start to slot hydrogen into the energy economy future yeah. of Victoria. Of course, Twiggy Forest has been a big, you know, he, he claims how green he is. And, um, but he, he's Kembler, the one he's planning for Kembler, he's talking about using gas, but he's saying eventually it will be green. Now, it seems to me if he's really sincere about being green, he should start out being green. It's very much singing from the song sheet of 
APIA, the petroleum peak body in Australia, to promote um, biogas and to promote hydrogen as a stay of execution for the gas industry. But I would say to Twiggy Forest, if he really is as green as he says he is, then get on the front foot with recycling renewables. There, you know, With the massive uptake of renewables around Australia, we will have stacks of solar panels, wind turbines, old batteries – uh, what, are we going to pile them up in landfill or are we going to acknowledge that they're actually resources that can be recycled indefinitely and start to turn our minds to how we are going to lead the world in renewables recycling because this is something that the whole world is going to have to tackle soon, sooner than later. Yeah. And on the, um, on the CCS problem, the burying the head in the sandcaper, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the conference of the energy industry last week, both the Minister King and the Prime Minister Albanese both said that that carbon capture and storage is the solution. Uh, but Yusik, the energy minister, challenged that. In fact, which was interesting, and said he didn't. He, he thinks it's totally unproven. Which um, I think he's maybe on the ball there a bit. But well, the I mean, Chevron, which of course does it out at Barrow Island, uh, the Gorgon proposal off Western Australia. Which promised it would be all see, or they'd bury all the carbon. Now they still haven't got it, yet they keep saying it works. Hmm. Yet they're still only burying about a third of what they promised they'd bury when they got their permit. Yeah, I mean, you, you could argue, on the other hand, that it is a proven technology and it's proven to not work. You know, the two best <laughs> case scenarios in Norway that were, you know, being touted to the world as leak proof are actually already leaking carbon dioxide. So. Uh, There is no example of carbon capture and storage effectively working globally. So we now know that, and I think it's time to acknowledge that and move on. If you really want a good carbon capture and storage program, trees. (laughs) Leave forests where they are, add to forests, and stand back and just let them do their job. Certainly in Victoria, mountain ash forests, which, you know, will no longer be logged after Mm. the end of the year, thank goodness. And um, hats off, by the way, to Friends of the Earth and, um, and the many orgs that work with in the Friends of the Earth, under the Friends of the Earth umbrella, like Victorian Forest Alliance, for their fantastic result in saving Victoria's mountain ash forests because they're the most carbon-dense forests in the world. So, uh, you know, if you, we have an opportunity to do real carbon capture and storage that we know works uh, instead of this, as I describe it, unicorn fart concept of um, burying carbon dioxide in old gas wells. And by the way, a lot of carbon capture and storage projects are being touted by fossil fuel industries, both to make themselves look good, but also because by injecting carbon dioxide into these old retired wells, they get to push out the last of the methane. And and so it really is just, a, a, it's a double grab mm. for the fossil fuel industry. And of course, on Barrow Island, though, where it, yeah, there's no big hole down there to put it into. We Years and years and years ago on this program, we interviewed a, a, an academic um, geologist called um, Llewellyn, Ginny Llewellyn. She was Welsh, had a wonderful accent. Um, but she, she said that the island is porous and so even when they get it in there, it's going to come out again. Yeah. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just nonsense. Absolutely ridiculous, you know, and um, and and... I, I, every time somebody says carbon capture and storage, I know that they're not serious <laughs> because if you really look at the science, you know that it's just not a thing. Well, it's an excuse just to keep polluting. Isn't absolutely, it? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And this is why you hear it promoted by um, you know, the fossil fuel industry and fans of the fossil fuel industry like Madeleine King. Mm-hmm. 
um, who is an unapologetic advocate for the gas industry um, and and can't see any problem with gas as we, you know, hurtle into an unsafe climate future or present even. So, um, and yet you don't see it being promoted by people who are serious about um, energy transition and who are serious about um, having a positive impact on a safe climate future. Yeah, and, and I, I noticed Woodside in the last week or so has announced it's going to develop a, another oil well in Mexico oh um, and claim that they claim they'll be making a profit by 2024 or something. They're very sure they say it's a wonderful proposal because they'll make money very quickly, um, just in case people ask them to actually f- ease off a bit. Um, but they say they'll be keeping, they'll still be making money out of oil to at least by 2040 from that well. Now, um, they seem to be putting profit way ahead of any other commitments altogether, as usual. For a change, I was going to say. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, um, I mean, and it, it's, it's not like Woodside doesn't have record profits already. So, uh, you know, this goes back to um, earlier in the show talking about um, the record profits of major industries, talking about the record profits of banks who fund a lot of these major industry developments mm. and, um, and, and finally record profits of um, top-end executives and CEOs particularly. It's, it just beggars belief. Yeah. yeah. Well, in fact, in the, in the, within uh, two days of each other last week, AGL announced record profits mm-hmm. and two days later it was announced that power bills are going to rise by 51%. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, one might have thought you could get those together a bit and not have to have such an increase. Well, it is them squeezing the last of every dollar that they can out of what they know is a doomed industry. You know, the fossil fuel industry is on the way out and we are seeing um, the sort of last-ditch desperate grab for every dollar that they can get their hands on. Uh, instead of pivoting to doing the right thing and pivoting to... Um, uh, energy efficiency, pivoting to renewable energy products, looking at how we can have closed loop uh, renewable systems, that is, you know, like I was saying, recycling of renewables indefinitely. Mm. Uh, I would be, if I were AGL, I'd be wanting to get at the front end of that industry because then I would be owning that technology. And that's where the smart money is in the long term. And it might not be that we can continue to have this boom-bust economy, but we never should have had it in the first place. Well, but, but that you were AGL, Freya, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you're not. <laughs> the, uh, but uh, we'll get back to that point we raised earlier, by the way. The, the fossil industry is now saying, and governments are saying in some ways as well, that the Move to renewables has slowed down. They're using the lack of transmission lines as one of the big excuses, but they're saying, they're saying therefore, the while there's proposals, there's no investment going into them, and therefore we have to keep getting more gas and oil because we've got to keep energy running. Now, mm-hmm. comment on all that. Well, uh, there's there's, an, there's a study that's being done, or I'm actually going to be attending a webinar in the next sort of week or so. Um, by the Australian National University that's looking at um, microgrid systems and virtual power plants and having that more nimble, small-scale renewable system where we have um, street corner batteries, where we have household batteries, where uh, every possible bit of roof space is um, a host for solar panels. 
Uh, just for instance, look at the um, car parks at shopping centres that are sitting there uncovered. Put solar panels over those things. You've got EV charging for the people who have an EV. You have um, a, a fantastic power generation opportunity. So we really need to rethink the way we manage our energy. So far, we have had a really industrialised, broad scale, like large scale approach to how we manage energy. And we're just not shifting the thinking. What we, I think, would be better off doing would be pivoting towards a more nimble, agile, small scale system. And it makes sense in a number of ways because, and I think Patty might agree with this, you know, talking about efficiency. Mm. Um, every time you, uh, you put electricity into a wire, the further it goes, the more it sheds microns. So you put it, uh, sorry, electrons, you put a certain number of electrons in at one end. And you get, f- you know, fewer electrons mm. at the so other end. So you run end. it from your lawn to Portland, for instance, and it's quite ridiculous, really, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> Whereas if you were just basically um, generating electricity from your roof into your house, using as much as you can there, mm. um, putting the excess into a battery. And, and I also believe that um, batteries have a long way to go. There's a lot of research and development now being done into different types of batteries, and I think we will find that there will be different sorts of battery technologies available for different applications. Um, I think that um, batteries for cars will be different to batteries for households, uh, depending on you know new technological breakthroughs. So I'm keeping, I'm keeping an eye mm. out for that. Yeah. Yeah. What about the problem of um, we talked about? I mean, with with getting the 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 materials that go into batteries, there are problems there environmentally, and you know we know around the world. Can we overcome those problems? Well, I think so. I think so, and I think that um, while we are giving money hand over fist to fossil fuel industries and not putting that money into research and development of emerging technologies, we're tying ourselves to old ways of doing things. So. Um, uh, I acknowledge that um, the cobalt that goes into batteries is going to run out. It is mm. not ethically produced right now. Um, and it's not so, – so therefore it's not a long-term solution. Um, but there's um, uh, molten salt battery technologies now under investigation, under development. Uh, and it just I – think, I think if we really just – were to say to the geniuses <laughs> who are um, who are investigating new technologies here have as much money as you need to really run research and development into emerging tech that is low impact that is infinitely recyclable. I think we might actually see some new developments emerging it 's just a matter of whether we 're prepared to put in that investment and whether we have time for the development of those technologies before we spaff the climate up against the wall, basically. Mm. You mentioned the subsidies uh, we give to the fossil industry. Give us some detail of that. Well, um, so under the Morrison government, the last... um, in the, the last full financial year of the Morrison government, $11.3 billion was given to fossil fuel industries broad scale, and that was Mm. um, through tax break subsidies, you know. Uh, So it's a not insignificant amount, and certainly Mm. if you were to take that um, you know, eleven plus billion dollars per annum, and invest that into emerging renewable tech. It'd be amazing to see what you know we could come up with. And and you know, Australia has history of being at the front of um, renewable technology development. 
Um, we have, for instance, in, you know, in the 80s came up with um, a far more efficient type of solar cell, which no one in Australia invested in. It ended up being sold to Germany. So we, you know, have been pioneers and we have been um, vanguards of new and um, improved uh, renewable technology. We just haven't backed it. So maybe it's time that we actually decided to become the clever country and, <laughs> and back ourselves, you know. Well, the, the transmission line problem, I mean, one of the problems is that the, the, the people whose land they're going to go through are, are complaining madly and wanting lots of lots of money for it to go through their land. But mm. can we overcome that? Because, it, the, you know, it, it, the transmission lines mean you you actually transmit from where the renewable energy is, which mm. our current current lines don't do. Mm. Um, can we get around that problem? Well, it's – I mean, we've got around that problem before, you know, yeah. and uh, I mean, I, I don't really have a solution that mm. – I, I don't have a soundbite solution for that because that is going to be on a case-by-case basis. Mm. That is going to be in negotiation with property holders and, and let's not forget, of course, traditional custodians and their right to, uh, to say what they – what is and is not acceptable use of their land. Uh, so really, um, you know, it's, 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 there's too much nuance, I think, for me to give you a succinct answer yeah. for that. Although Kevin, I suppose it comes back to the point you raised earlier about more localised um, sources of energy anyway. Um, uh, yeah, I acknowledge that there is going to be uh, a, a role for um, broad-scale, like large-scale renewable energy projects. Mm. And so then we will need the transmission lines to carry those green electrons from where they're generated to where they need to be used. Uh, but I think that we really need to look at limiting that as much as possible so that we limit the uh, the knock-on impact of, for instance, upgraded transmission lines and having to build whole new transmission systems to accommodate that. Yeah. And... Victoria with gas at the moment. I mean, for years we know they've had the moratorium, etc. But uh, I've, I've seen some companies now talking about developing gas in Victoria. Is, is, it, is it available? So what we have in Victoria is, uh, and, and it's exciting because Friends of the Earth was very much part of making this happen. Mm. Uh, we have the only constitutional ban on fracking in the world in Victoria. Uh, and included in that is acid well stimulation, which is a little known technology in Australia, thank goodness, but it is really basically pouring um, hydrofluoric and hydrochloric acid down a well shaft to dissolve rock to release gas. <laughs> it's it's mind-blowingly awful. Yes. So fortunately, that is also not allowed in Victoria anymore. Uh, what we don't have is a moratorium on um, gas per se. So offshore gas developments mm. are still carrying, you know, carrying forward. We've still got seismic blasting in the exploration for new gas and oil fields off the coast of Victoria, and that's in the hands of the federal government. Yeah, and of course, speaking of fracking, um, the government up in north, the Beetaloo proposal, I mean, oh. it's a disaster, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. It's a carbon bomb waiting to happen. And we can only hope that there – I mean, you know, it's, it's great to see the – um, popular recognition of that issue and see so many people pushing back against it and saying, no, I was at a um, an online forum with Tanya Plibersek on Monday night and uh, she was under so much pressure to uh, about the Beetaloo project 
And uh, so I'm just hoping that it becomes so unpalatable that they need to back down from it yeah. or that um, the finance just isn't there for it. Let's hope. I mean, interestingly enough, that one I raised earlier about getting lithium from brine, uh, one of, fracking is one of the ways they do it, in fact. So it's, a, it's an offshoot of the fracking process. Yeah. So they, they, get, they get the fracking, they do the fracking, then as part of it they get more profit by taking lithium from the brine. So, it, you know, it's win-win for the, for the fossils. How did we get to a world where the evil, where evil geniuses are running everything? <laughs> My goodness. Um, I just want to, stepping back to the hydrogen proposal, I just yeah. want to um, uh, let you know and let your listeners know that uh, we launched a petition uh, late last week to uh, oppose the HESC, the Hydrogen Energy Supply Chain project that is the producing hydrogen from coal, uh, shipping it across to Western Port and then attempting to bury the carbon emissions through CCS. <laughs> Madness. Um, so we have launched a petition to oppose that. It's, um, with, it's on the Victorian Parliament website now, but if you want to find it, it is, uh, it's a bitly link. So it's bit.ly forward slash no, N-O, numeral two, H-E-S-C, that's bit.ly forward slash no to H-E-S-C. If you want to jump on and sign that petition, we've already got over 800 signatories on that petition, which is great in less than a week. And that petition is working in tandem with or in sort of uh, at the same time as the Victorian Greens have uh, the Energy and Resources Transition Amendment transition away from coal bill before Parliament at the moment. So uh, we, you know, we, we note that we're not the only ones with concerns about this project and we ask uh, any, any listeners to please jump on and sign that petition because we need to get 10,000 signatories to trigger a debate in Parliament. All right, dear, we've run out of time. But look, thanks for that. And I think we should congratulate you on the all foe with you through foe because I think foe has played such a key role in the fact that Victoria has, has at least crammed down on gas in recent years, so... Thanks for that. It's good, yeah. Um, we are out of time. Joe's going to wander up to the studio next door very shortly. And um, Freya, thanks for coming in and doing that. It was great. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the show, okay. Kevin. It's always a pleasure. Radio right, yeah. Freya Leonard is the no more gas <laughs> right? <That's> right. <laughs> person. And Karina, thank you. You were very quiet today. Once. Okay. Yeah. Next week, uh, first Wednesday, so we're looking at transport next week with John McPherson. That's right. Stay tuned for Anarchist World this week on 3CR. Yep.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.